Oh, hello guys. Welcome to episode two of That Is Life. I just want to say thank you so much for listening to episode one. I listened back with my husband and I literally was like, oh God, was I rambling and did that stupid shit that we all do where suddenly, you know, because whilst I was recording it, I was like, oh God, I'm so excited. And then afterwards I was like, oh God, why did I do that? What is wrong with us humans? We are so self-sabotage and I'm trying. I'm working on it. So episode two, I wanted to focus on foreboding joy, which I mentioned in episode one, where Brené Brown talks about it a lot. I think the first time I heard about it was Eckhart Tolle. I never know whether to say Eckhart Tolle or Eckhart Tolle, but I think it's Eckhart Tolle. Um, So I read his book, the first book, Power of Now, when I was about 24. And it, honestly, it changed my life. It changed um, my outlook on life. It was around that time I told you about that I was doing this course and somebody, you know, the teacher had said I was Moni (laughs) or whatever. And I couldn't understand, like, I just couldn't understand how to perceive the world in a different way. I was always looking to the future and regretting my past. That was, like, a big thing for me. Stupid shit that I'd done in the past, like, teenage shit that we all do and other bits that maybe not everybody does, but I had a lot of guilt and shame, and I had a lot of guilt and shame about who I was as a person and how unlikable I was and how I wasn't like the what like the thing is it's ridiculous I was popular in school I suppose but if you don't like yourself it doesn't matter how popular you are you don't like yourself and you still feel like nobody likes you like nobody likes you really and so I sought a lot of validation from boys mainly you know I needed a snog at every disco that we went to and I really wanted boys to fancy me and I really wanted to be fanciable but I also really wanted girls to like me and think that I was cool and quirky and I had this longing to be so I don't know I'm 35 so I don't know the 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 demographic of who's listening but there was a film called never been kissed oh god no it wasn't never been kissed it wasn't that that was with drew barrymore it was a different film with the song kiss me under the milky like i can't think what the film was called now but i think it had josh hart in it anyway there was a girl in it i think she was like this you know, artist, like, supposedly unattractive, but you know, when you're watching the film, and you're like, she's just got a middle parting and long hair, and bushy eyebrows, and you're literally gonna, like, suddenly wax her eyebrows, and side part her hair, and she's suddenly gonna be like, oh, like, that was the message we were being sold in the 90s, but I was down for it, but I so wanted to be that, like, quirky girl next door, that, like, just happened to be pretty but like didn't try to be pretty and that people thought were pretty but she didn't think she was pretty and I just wanted to be so humble and like oh 
I'm probably giving a lot away about myself just on the second episode that I think probably I should wait a little bit longer. But look, that's me. So I had this desire to be this particular person and yet I had seriously big fears about who I actually was and how I portrayed myself. And I said to you, you know, one of the things was about myself, the the, the sentence I finished off about myself was, I am boring. But another one for me was, I am obnoxious. I think I was so fearful that people thought I was obnoxious. And I thought I was high maintenance and demanding and a drama queen because... I was, I had those tendencies, I had those behaviours, but that didn't make me a bad person, but hey, look, I was my teens, um, I grew up with a mum who had been told those things, and people had rolled their eyes at her, and me and my mum are really similar, so I picked up a lot of the fears I saw projected onto my mum about, oh gosh, she's opinionated, isn't she? Oh gosh, she knows what she wants. She's a bit demanding. Oh no, too assertive, too this, too much, too dramatic. And I took that on board and had, and have, I'm working on them with my therapist. I have those massive fears as well. And so I spent a long time not liking who I was and therefore not being very, I didn't have the ability to like look forward with joy and look back with any kind of like empathy or self-kindness. I just beat myself up about who I was, who I was going to be. And but then I had so much, what's the word? Um, so much, um, uh, high expectation. I had so much high expectation of who I needed to be, what successes I needed to have to overcome who I was deep, deep down. Like I needed to be a famous actress so I could have the validation that I wasn't this asshole that I had decided that I was. But ridiculously enough, actually, being an actress would mean that I was dramatic and I was demanding and I did have high expectations and perhaps I was high maintenance because to have that as a job and a dream, you've got to have those behaviours and energies. And I don't I don't mean them in a negative way. I don't mean like high maintenance in what people, in the negative connotation, but just that's a very high demanding job. So to be that person and to have that career, I was, I probably needed the tendencies that I had, but I was so shameful of them that actually like going to an audition and owning who I was and being who I was and being like, yeah, I've got the job before even having the job, which a lot of the time is the energy that you kind of need to go in that room with. I was ashamed of having that energy. So I played it down and I played humble and I played, oh, I'm going to be the quirky girl that's not next door that doesn't really want anything, but really, I really did. So I was self-sabotaging from day one with the acting stuff, which we'll get into another time. So the point being, I wasn't happy with who I was and who I needed to be to to eradicate who I was was somebody that then wasn't going to end up being authentic. And it was a high expectation I had of myself that wasn't actually something that I could do 
realistically, it wasn't ever going to be sustainable. So I was in a lot of inner turmoil through my teens and through my 20s. And when I read The Power of Now, it just brought some shit home. It was like, whoa, I need to like, firstly, live in the actual present. I need to live in the moment rather than regret a load of the shit I've done and need to go so far away from that in my future. I need to just kind of sit with who I am and be more present and change some shit up because I was not happy with the life I was leading and what I was doing. And that shit is messy. Not liking yourself is fucking hard and it is draining. And when you don't like yourself and you need all this validation from other people, it's draining from other people. I needed so much attention from my then boyfriend. I needed so much time and so much energy from my friends to like validate me. Like I couldn't possibly be in on my own and have my own company because I needed people to be free and give me their time and their empathy and their energy. And I learned, unfortunately, I think what I ended up doing was going so far away from that and not demanding anything of anyone and like not knowing not demanding that's probably the wrong word but not really knowing my actual values of like what I deserve just as a human because I still didn't know my worth the point being is I changed my some of my actions I I stopped being I stopped having very high expectations but that didn't, it wasn't because I decided that my worth was worthy of whatever I had now and to embrace what I had now and to be grateful. Like I did start taking on those patterns very slightly, but actually I think I probably still felt unworthy and that I wasn't enough and so built some patterns that actually intrinsically made me slightly pull back from who I was rather than dive deep into who I was which is what I actually needed to do so going to the foreboding joy what I would end up doing was worrying about my future worrying about what could happen worrying so much about the plane crashing and this one story that really stuck in my head Oh, I just remember John, that teacher I talked about in episode one. He said to me, Dan, you are protecting yourself. Like everything that you're doing, all of this worry is about self-protection because you think if you foresee your life failing, if you predict all the shit going wrong, if you like can envisage it, you think you can plan for it and you think that you can self-protect and you think that you can guard yourself from the pain, shield yourself from the pain because, well, I knew it. I knew it was going to turn out like that. Knew I wasn't going to get the acting job. Knew that my ex was going to dump me. Knew it. Knew my mum was going to get cancer. Knew she was going to die. Like, that, you you don't get any bonus points for knowing it, for predicting it, or for supposedly self-protecting yourself from it. He goes to me, if you're on a plane and you're worrying about it crashing because that's a self-protection, 
you predict it right if I predict it yeah if I predict it it's gonna be all right it's gonna be all right if you're there on the plane and you've worried for the like six hours of that eight hour journey and you've sat and you've you're tapping away and you're anxious you've got the sweats you're saying to your partner next to you like oh my god it's gonna crash and like you're worried and you're worried and you're worried and you're anxious about it and you're really worried and then on the sixth hour that plane goes down he was like that plane crash is not going to hurt any less because you worried and you predicted about it. It's going to hurt the exact same. And just because you, you're going to go, knew it, knew it was, knew the plane was going to go down and you're there to the carriage and you're like, I knew it. It doesn't help. It doesn't make it any better you're fucked. And what you actually did was sit in your last six hours of your life and worry and feel like severe anxiety. You wasted that last six hours of your life worrying about the plane going down and that worry didn't even help you when the plane went down. What? What are we like as humans? How are we those people? Like that is learnt behaviour that we have learnt. Society, etc. Bloody blah, 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 blah. I'm not a psychologist, so I won't go, I won't go into it completely. But that is crazy. We ruin our experience in the moment, in the now, which Eckhart Tolle talks about a lot in Power of Now and his other book, The New Earth. I recommend them highly. But we ruin our present moment. Wasting time worrying about what is going to happen in the future that we cannot control anyway. You cannot control that plane going down. I could not control my mum getting cancer and I couldn't control her dying. And that pain sits with me every day because I'm a control freak and that's hard. But I remember saying to my mum, I had that premonition a week before my wedding. I knew something bad was going to happen. I knew that I was too happy. And I I knew that I'd never had anything bad happen to me in my whole entire life. And I fucking knew something was going to happen. And she said, Bob, you knowing it, does it make you feel better? Do you feel better now having had that premonition? Like what does, what joy does that bring you to have known it? And I was like, it doesn't, it brings me nothing. It absolutely brings me nothing. And she was like, so it doesn't matter. It's, I'm glad you had the premonition and then it left you. But if you'd have sat for the last month worrying about it and not enjoying your wedding because, oh, I'm not going to be in so much joy or not being in that month of happy maritable, maritable, marital, oh my God, I I can't even say the word, marital bliss. What is wrong with me? (gasps) Okay. Here you're going to understand on this podcast that I am actually awful with words. I would be like, Mum would be like, that's not the word in that context. It's the right word, but that's not the word. My mum was amazing with words and spelling and context. And I'd be like, mum, how do you spell whatever? And she'd be like, how do you think it's spelled? I used to hate it. But now I'm like, oh my God, I am totally doing that with my kids. So it didn't serve me 
to worry. I am glad I didn't spend the next month worrying about what was going to happen. I am glad that my mum didn't tell me the possibility of the cancer in the couple of weeks that she knew. I wish she had of to lighten the burden for her, but I know my mum and actually it would have burdened her even more because I know that having cancer and dying, I think the biggest thing she was scared about was actually the guilt of leaving me, which I hope by her last, you know, I think about three days before she passed away, she said, I said, are you ready? And she said, I'm never going to be ready because I'm never going to be ready to leave you. And I said, I have, I, you have to know that I'm going to be okay. I promise I'm going to be okay. It's going to be the hardest thing I will ever do. But I just want you to know that I'll be okay. Because at that point, I just, I knew she was so close to the end. And I didn't want her to hold on in pain. Um, Just for me, I didn't want her to do that. So she said, promise, promise me that you mean that when you say it. And I did. And I think part of my own grief journey is I'm not trying to be okay for her, but but because I had to mean it when I said it. I couldn't, me and mum didn't lie to each other. Like there was three times I told her a lie in my whole entire life. It may be four. And I told her the truth actually straight away afterwards because I'm such I bunked off school once in my life and that night I was like mom I have to tell you something so that was the relationship we had so I couldn't lie and say I was going to be okay if I wasn't but I know for my mum as well being okay doesn't mean that I can't grieve and it doesn't mean that I can't cry she will want me to do what is right for me and what I need And so she will 100% know that that is grieving and not shutting it out or shutting it down. But uh, I had to let her know that it was okay to let go because I know the guilt that she felt. She said, okay, because I'm scared. I'm scared of two things. She said she was scared of the pain because the pain was bad but she was really scared of needing to let go, but not wanting to because of me, which is why I had to reassure her because, you know, that, the guilt, I can't even imagine of having a kid. And then I know she knew it wasn't her fault. I know that she knew that, but she said like, I just have that guilt. It's just mum guilt. It's mum pressure to be here like I want to be here for you for your life so like you've got a whole load of shit emotions to contend with when you're going through the messy parts of your life and so I kind of just want today's episode today's message to be about this idea that you worrying and that that comes as as shame in this form of shame and guilt as well. But I suppose that like there's a whole that's a whole like ten episodes of stuff that could go down and dirty with. But yes, I did just say down and dirty. But the foreboding joy for self protecting for turning your worry and your 
angst about what could happen and using that in your present moment doesn't serve us. Worrying about what was going to happen once mum went, worrying about results, worrying and self-protecting actually doesn't protect you. Being in the moment and being present and getting to like live every second of joy that we could possibly find was gonna serve us so much more in the moment than worrying about whether she was three weeks away, three months away from death. And I had that moment where I thought that worrying about what was gonna happen was going to help me and I thank goodness didn't end up in that hole because I now have extra anxieties about mortality and life and death and they're niggles that want to I you know my ego wants me to sit with them and have them play on my mind over and over again but my core consciousness and Sorry, I don't think anyone thought this was going to be as as hippy-dippy as it perhaps is. But, you know, who I am as a person deep, deep down knows that those worries aren't going to serve me. I can't sit and not be joyful about getting an offer accepted on the house we got. Because some people are like, oh, you should wait till you get the keys. And I'm like... Uh, no, I want to take the small wins and the magic in every moment and just embrace the fact that we got an offer accepted on a house. Like, that's a big fucking deal. I'm going to sit with that magic. If it falls through, it falls through. But at least I then still had this magic moment. If it fell through and I hadn't had the joy because I was like, no, not going to be excited until I get the bloody keys and then it falls through, then I've had no joy. Fuck that shit. I am here for the magic. We have to be here for the magic. The in-between moments. There will always be shit fucking moments. It's life. That is life. There are going to be shit moments. People are going to die. They're going to get ill. You're going to lose your job. You're going to have moments where maybe you have no money. You're going to have moments where you get dumped, or you've got to dump someone, love comes to an end, marriage ends, you know, you, you friendships evolve and change, and you, you lose those friendships, or you stub your fucking toe, or you run out of loo paper, or you're on a public toilet, and you look, and there is no loo paper, that shit happens, but you've still got to enjoy doing that satisfying poo, because, You've got to enjoy the magic bits in between and appreciate, if you stub your toe, appreciate the fact that you've got a toe to bloody stub. I mean, I know I sound like, oh God, she's just happy about everything. Trust me, I'm not. I'm not. And there is so much shit in the world and there's so much shit with the fact that my mum isn't here anymore, trust me, like, I could dwell on every aspect of the fact that she's not here anymore, because nothing about her not being here is a bonus, 
even the fact that she's left me an amazing amount of inheritance for me to set up, you know, a, a more secure life, fuck it, I would rather obviously have no money ever again to just have my mum here with me, but that doesn't mean I can't be grateful for the position she's left me in, or it's not a silver lining, I don't know what the word is, but there is, you know, that that there is magic, there's magic in the year we had, we had an insanely amazing year that we learned so much about each other, and so much about ourselves, and we got to experience a love that, honestly, I don't know if I will have ever experienced that if it wasn't for the loss, and there's a grief quote that I didn't realise was a grief quote, but it's something that came to light as soon as I was started going through grief, was there is so much grief because there is so much love, and I think it's a Winnie the Pooh quote, <laughs> a different one, which is like how amazing it is to have something so amazing that makes losing it so hard. And yeah, the fact that in life there are these moments that are so shit, but they're so shit because you have these moments that have the ability to be so amazing. And if we can't be grateful for that, and if we just forebode joy all the time and we push joy away because, oh, better not be joyful in case shit hits the fan, it's just a really shitty, hard life to live. So I don't want to live that life. And I really want to encourage anyone else not to want to live that life. And if we can try our hardest in those moments when we start foreboding joy to go, hold on a second that's a pile of shit, I'm not gonna buy into that anymore, so that, that is my podcast on foreboding joy, I hope that you've got something from it, anything, uh, I hope that you can go about your day feeling a little bit like, yeah, I'm not gonna do that shit, and start questioning when you do do that shit, and how maybe you can start being a little bit more present in the moment, uh, because yeah, that's what cancer did for mum, it made her live in the present, because looking forward is kind of shit when you've got terminal cancer, you can have hope, but looking forward knowing that I think that you're dying, I suppose forces you to actually go day by day, sunbeam by bloody sunbeam, and um, experience and enjoy every ounce of your daily momentarily momentary magic (sighs) all right thank you so much for listening I will in future have guests on I hope but for now it's just me so I'm gonna leave it there thank you if you can review this I I don't know in iTunes (laughs) wherever you can review it and share it where you can share it I really, really appreciate it because I would really love this message to spread far and wide and reach as many people as possible because my mum wanted to be of service and if this is her way of being of service, I am happy to be the messenger. So please do share away. I appreciate you all and um, I will see you in the next episode this episode is sponsored by kettle boobs customized 
stylish kettlebells that you can have at home sitting on your shelf looking gorgeous if you decide you don't want to work out and you want to put your feet up and have a glass of wine. Find the balance, enjoy who you are, the imperfect bits, because those bits are perfect and that are what our kettle boobs are about, being unique, one of a kind. So this episode is sponsored by them. Thank you so much. Go check out kettleboobs at www.kettleboobs.co.uk and you get a 10% off if you give the code that is life. All right, my loves, I will see you next time. Thank you again for listening and sharing and supporting. I appreciate it. See you soon.